I'm at the Runkeeper offices in Boston, joined by Rebecca Odette. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Can you tell us a little bit about what Runkeeper is? Runkeeper is used by 30 million people globally to power their active lives. So specifically, that means we enable users to track their workouts and help provide them the motivation they need to get and stay fit. We offer our users personalized guidance and motivation, and we allow the Runkeeper users to set fitness goals, to understand their progress as they complete activities, as well as a chance for users to connect with their friends for social encouragement and also a chance to engage in some friendly competition. 30 million is a pretty big number. How long have you been building into that? So we have been available for over five years. Uh, we were one of the first 100 apps in the iTunes App Store. So right now we are available on both the iPhone and Android platforms. We also do have um, a website, but most of our users are on either the iPhone or the Android. All right, so to turn to yourself, what's your own role within the company, Rebecca? So at Runkeeper, I'm the Director of Program Management, and that basically changes day to day. I wear a lot of hats, but my general focus is on how can we optimize how our team is working together and how we operate. And how long have you been in this role? I have been with the company about two and a half years. So have you seen a lot of change in the last two and a half years? Absolutely. It's been fun. It's gone by quickly. Uh, so when I started, I was the 17th person here, and now we're up to over 50 people. So there's been a lot of changes. Uh, when I started, they basically brought me in to help get some structure and process. Uh, prior to that, people were working together, but it was a lot more unstructured and unfocused, and we knew in order to grow, we would need to be a little bit more organized so we can move quickly. Uh, so that's why they brought me in, and it's been a lot of evolution since then. So was it unstructured in a software sense, or software and sales and marketing? You know, the company was growing a lot. At the time when I started in January of 2012, they had just raised $10 million in funding in November of um, 2011. So they were just starting to hire in a lot more functions and roles. And as they were bringing more people on, you know, going from having a handful of people to now having, you know, 17-plus you know, when I joined, a bunch of people started right after I did. So we knew that we really needed to focus on how do we take these great people who are joining and kind of leverage them and structure the team in a way where we can kind of get what we need and, and move forward quickly. So what was in place before you joined? So at that point, there really wasn't much formal structure in place when I had started. So the team was pretty small then, and generally conversations would happen around the office organically. And since most team members were around to hear the conversations and participate, I would say that just in-person discussions were really how the team was staying in the loop and up to date at that point. There was also a Google spreadsheet that the team was informally using when I started to track what features were being worked on and who was working on them. But um, it was very informally and loosely used. The team was heads down just trying to focus on work and, you know, get things out to our users. So there wasn't a big focus on actually updating that and tracking it since there was no project or program manager type of person at that point. So it wasn't always kept up to date. So you didn't have formal testing or QA deployments, anything like that? We did not. We probably did on the deployment side, but definitely not in the testing and QA. I remember that sticks in my mind is when I was interviewing as something I was very concerned about and wanted to change once I joined the team. So, 
So then, when you joined, what did you do? So the first few months, I wanted to basically see how the team's functioning today, and understand what things are working well, what things are not working well. I didn't want to come in and say, "I have all this program management experience. Let me show you how we should do things." Like, you know, we needed to figure out what would work for the, this team. So yeah, I started to do some early and small things when I first started, like having a meeting agenda. Taking notes, making sure you know whoever needed to see the notes got them. You know we were following up on things, so those were some little things. And then basically, once we learned about our team and how we really want to move fast, how we want to collaborate, how it's important for people to be empowered to have a part of what we're building, we you know investigated some different options and decided to give Agile a try, specifically Scrum. And that was like my first big undertaking here.、Hmm. Was there any resistance to the changes that you were bringing? Yes, yes, there definitely was. People were happy to have me, but there was also some, I think, nervousness and hesitation that there, I was going to want to put in lots of process and micromanage what people were doing.、Uh, that definitely is, was not the case. I, I didn't want to be a bottleneck, but I wanted to help set up structure so that the team was empowered to to move quickly. So we definitely had to get buy-in before we move forward with Agile. So that was, you know, talking to the CEO, talking to the CTO about kind of different options, what we thought would work. One of our、um, UX team members had a lot of really good experience with Agile, Drew Condon, and he was a great resource and proponent and champion for Agile and helping people understand how that could work. Um, how that worked in the past, why it might be a good fit for us,、um, and Drew and I tag teamed a lot of the details about how we would logistically implement Agile here. So it was a, a team of developers, and only one had had worked in Agile previously. A lot of the team came from the defense industry,、right. so they had seen a lot of waterfall、mm. processes and projects that went on forever and never saw the light of day, and lots of paperwork and. I can see why it would be a daunting task for them to change from such a rigid structure with deadlines and budgets and maybe comfortable goals, then moving to a very market-driven environment. Absolutely. So that was, I think, a lot of people's experience with program management before I joined was thinking about paperwork, check boxes,、mm-hmm. unnecessary、uh, things. At least in their mind, I'm sure. From the defense perspective, there were some reasons why they did what they did, but we needed to do something that would let us iterate, collaborate, and move quickly. So you said you picked Agile and Scrum, but had you looked at other options? We did. We definitely we focused more on the Agile side of things, but we looked at Scrum. We talked about, you know, Lean. We talked about、um, Kanban. Some different options. Ultimately, felt like Scrum was a good fit for us. We liked. The、uh, the time box iterations were really helpful for our planning. We also had looked at more traditional methodologies of、uh, waterfall that definitely didn't feel like a good fit.、Uh, we did not want to spend a lot of time doing upfront requirements and、um, extensive documentation. We wanted to just move quickly and collaborate. And when you transitioned to Agile, then was it one day to the next or a more gradual process? So we had an official kickoff with the team. Probably a couple weeks after we started talking about it, and gave it a go, and we basically said, "Let's give it three sprints and let's assess and see what's working and what's not."、Uh, we have changed a lot from those days. We started out as one large 
scrum team, we realized pretty quickly one large team was not very good. There was a reason why they say the team should be, you know, six to nine, five to nine folks. And we've generally stuck with that from that point on. We broke into smaller teams. By the time you joined, it was seven, you were the 17th employee. So how many were developers? Approximately. That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. But you had enough for enough developers to exceed the nine that you were thinking of? Yes, because okay. we were pretty traditional with uh, how we structured our teams in terms of having each Agile team be one that is self-sufficient. So we had a product manager embedded on the team. We had user experience folks. We had developers. Um, I participated as well. I did a lot of QA then. So um, I kind of helped from that role, and that was really it. But I want to say our first team was probably 10 to 12 people. Okay, so it was 100% of the developers moved to Agile in that one yes. move. Because yes. I've seen other companies where uh, one team would move to it, try it out, share their experiences, and then other teams mm-hmm. may or may not move to it. We were small enough, we figured let's give it a try, and mm-hmm. since nothing was in place before that. It, it seemed like a better alternative than that. So we we tried it and definitely bumpy the first few sprints. And where are you now with Agile? Now we, um, we've definitely grown a lot, which is great. So now we have uh, many teams that are either Scrum or Kanban. Our systems team that does our Infrastructure, DevOps, they operate in Kanban because they work with a lot more teams and support a lot more teams. And we have uh, two teams that are focused specifically on building uh, the RunKeeper product. And we have another team focused on our uh, other app that we released in April, Breeze. So we now have a total of four Agile teams. So in the two years since you joined, obviously things have changed a lot. Can you talk us talk to us a little bit about that? So I'd say um, we've definitely had an evolution uh, from moving from one team to multiple teams, and then within multiple teams, shifting many times in terms of what those teams are focusing on, uh, in terms of who's on the teams. We've had a lot of shuffle there depending on what our business priorities are, and I think we've been really um, good about being able to react to those changes. I would also say on the Agile side of things, we had other functions join the team. For instance, business development was something newer. Um, Our marketing team and community team have grown. Our support team has grown. And while those teams aren't in uh, specific, strict, scrum type of pods, they definitely have taken a lot of the things that work well, stand-ups, having regular retrospectives, and, um, you know, kind of iterating and keeping a backlog, those elements of Scrum have worked really well for them. And I would say our biggest challenge over the last two years has really been on the scaling side of things. So as our teams have grown, how do we keep teams in sync? Our, across teams, you know, people are working out of the same code bases. People are contributing to the same releases that are going out. And um, keeping the teams in sync, making sure uh, you know everyone knows who's doing what, who's responsible for certain things, has been our biggest challenge. And does your own role feed into that inter-team communication? Absolutely. And I think getting structure in place and facilitating communication were probably the two 
big reasons why they brought me on board. So I definitely am not the go-between of information, but setting up the teams in ways that, you know, we have common tools and places where people know uh, they'll be able to find what's in the next release, making sure when there are discussions that need to happen, when we're all working on a release together, that those things are happening. Uh, something you, you may have heard if you've talked with other folks who are doing um, Scrum is a Scrum of Scrums. That's something we do on a regular basis. We have someone for each of our different functions and sprint teams come and just give a quick uh, heads up to the other teams about anything cross-team dependency-wise coming up. It's not a status update. It's specifically, you know, we might be sending an email out to users from our marketing team. Well, the support team needs to know about that because, you know, they may get questions from our users about it. And the team that needs to be building it obviously needs to know about it. So we use Scrum and Scrums for a lot of the cross-team coordination. And do you include those departments in the Scrum and Scrums? The, we do. The finance and business and... Yeah. We try to have someone from basically all of the functions that are involved with product development in those meetings. What about the likes of a test group and release groups? Are they... Have you got formalized functions for them? We do. So our QA department, uh, we had our first QA hire in August of 2012, and now we've got four people in that department. Our QA team is great. Uh, once we got one QA person, they realized there's a need for someone to be, you know, very specifically watching over the quality, testing on all the different platforms, uh, especially Android. We've got a, a lot of Android testing that we're doing. Uh, there's a lot to support there. So... Um, we do have those groups on each of our Agile teams. We have a dedicated QA person uh, who's responsible for all of the work that comes up in our sprints, testing those, and then they usually collaborate across teams for any regression to support releases. We don't have a team that specifically supports releases, but what we do is we usually share um, every other release one team owns. And when I say owns, it means they're responsible for making sure you know, we have all the assets needed to submit to the App Store that, you know, we've done any type of testing, regression testing. We've triaged any bugs that have come out of that. Uh, you know, we're all set to go with a kind of our branching and merging, ready for the release. They make the release package. But uh, team, both, um, you know, or multiple teams will contribute to the actual release. But somebody has to have the final accountability for making sure everything's completed. So it's one team takes it in turn every time you release to do the specific release work and then the yes. responsibility changes. Yes. With regard to release and QA, have you found that those functions have become bottleneck for your development process in any way? That is a good question. I would definitely say we often feel like we don't have uh, enough time to QA, especially if it's a sprint where we're doing a release. So that's something we're constantly trying to work through. I think we've made good headway there. We don't have it figured out yet. Uh, we actually were just talking earlier today that we're now going to have three of our teams contributing to releases, and we need to kind of revisit our processes to see what do we need to do now that we're going to have three teams contributing to releases. That means three QA folks who might be involved with regression, you know, three different sets of teams who need to be involved with any bugs that come out of that, and how do we split that up? So work in progress there. And then how often do you release your software? We release on our iPhone and Android platforms every five weeks, and we stagger those so that we don't release them on the same day. So every couple of weeks, 
we're releasing a new version of the mobile app for RunKeeper. Uh, Breeze, we just launched in April, so that's one. We don't have a set release cadence yet, but we're trying on about a monthly basis. And on the web side of things, we release continuously. Who's pushing the releases? Is it new features coming in from business, bug fixes, ideas from customers? How does it work? I would say all of the above. Uh, so we basically, at a company level, have specific priorities that we're focusing on. And we, every quarter, have priorities that we're looking at, and that d- definitely tends to change. But we like to make sure the teams that are actually executing understand the top-line priorities and that they are responsible for figuring out the details of what that actually looks like. So I think it's really great that the teams are empowered to do that. We also have input from our business development team who's working with our partners. So that's what, you know, how they might want to interact with us. That's an area that's newer for us. We really just started working closely with partners, I would say, last summer. And since January, we've had a lot of really great experiences there. So we're definitely hearing from our partners and incorporating that. And on the bug front, uh, we, every sprint, have what we like to call bug bash. So we get our teams together. They sit in a room and basically go through a backlog of bugs that our support team has worked with uh, our QA and product management team on prioritizing. And we just crush as many bugs as we can and integrate those into our releases on a regular basis. When you are releasing it on this five-week cycle, what if business comes to you and says, we have this great idea for money-making and we need it to come out in week one or two of that five-week cycle, three or four weeks early? Mm-hmm. Is that something that you can handle or you just say no? It depends on what it is. Um, we definitely want to be able to react to business if it's something that makes sense. Uh, so we've definitely had times where we've had to go off-cycle if it, it makes complete sense to do so. We've also had times where... You know, some things just weren't worth going off of the cycle for because it's a little bit of a challenge to get back into the cycle. It does throw things off a little bit. So we react as best as we can. The more heads up we can get on that, the better. You know, if someone comes in and says, you know, I need this next week, that's a little bit more challenging. But we've definitely had to do that, and that's part of being agile. So, you know, we try to accommodate where we can. So have you found that using the Scrum methodology has helped you react to those kind of things? In some ways, yes. So we operate in two-week sprints. So if it's something that can be done after that two-week time period, absolutely. If it's something that needs to be done within that two-week time period and we've already committed to what we're doing, that definitely makes it challenging. We have found, though, when we've needed to change what we're doing mid-sprint, our team will, you know, update our commit and we will recommit. And then from that point on, we consider that our sprint. Compared to your previous work experiences when you weren't using Scrum, mm-hmm. how do you, what's your preference now? I would say I really enjoy being in an agile environment. I, I think the business results speak for themselves of how quickly uh, you can get things out and the quality level of that. I think people are so much more engaged because they're able to have, you know, a direct impact on what we're building. I think that um, is really important. I personally do love planning, though, so I, I miss Microsoft Project a little bit. I have never been able to use it here, but uh, you know I've learned lots of other skills that have been fun as well. At RunKeeper, you're using Agile not just for development, but for other tasks also. Can you talk a little bit about that? So we have some of our other functions that are also 
using Agile. We tend to use uh, Kanban a little bit more. It fits better uh, than using the time box sprints that we have as part of Scrum. So I would say our marketing team, our support team, and our business development team have really started to take on uh, using that. And also, uh, even our user experience team. So they're part of our different um, Scrum pods and our Scrum teams, but they also themselves like to make sure they're iterating on their process. So, you know, we have every other week a retro with that team to talk about process. I think retrospectives are something that uh, our team has found valuable. We've started doing that organization, organizational wide, um, not just in regards to sprints. So I also think having uh, the prioritized backlog that you're always pulling from that's part of Kanban is really helpful for those teams. Can you tell me a little bit about Kanban? I haven't heard the term before. Kanban is also a form of agile in a way of structuring your work where you have a continuous backlog of items that are always prioritized and the team is responsible for always pulling from the top of that backlog and how things move along in that process is you'll have limits to how many things you can have in any given state of your process. So if your process is, you know, you've got things to do in a backlog, you've got things in progress, you might have things in testing and things that are done. You may, you know, have a limit of, you know, only five things can be in progress at a time. And if you go to pull something over that sixth item, you need to finish something that's already in there before you can pull it over. At RunKeeper, you're using story points. Can you tell me a little bit about how they work? So story points, I would say, was one of the things in Scrum when we started using it that was a little hard to understand. On paper, it makes sense. Okay, you know, things of different complexity have a different point amount. That that definitely makes sense. But when it comes down to categorizing and figuring out what things are, you know, falling into the different buckets, that's where it gets a little bit more challenging. So we uh, use planning poker and we use the Fibonacci sequence or a modified version of it. So our story point values can be zero, a half, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen, twenty. They go up from there. Generally you find things are in the three to eight range. Um, so what we did is we basically kind of took an audit and said, okay, these are all of the different story point values. Story points are supposed to be used not on um, hours, days, or effort, but complexity. How big is this thing? So we we looked at different things in terms of complexity. You know, how many different areas in the code does this thing touch? Does it involve any third-party integrations? Is there significant testing involved with it? So we tried to look at different areas to figure out what our buckets were. We When we first started using it, we came up with basically a list of all the different story point options and what felt like the right kind of bucket. We um, have tweaked it since then, but once we came up with that general listing, we took a bunch of potential stories, wrote them on stickies, put them on you know a whiteboard and basically grouped them by what type of stories felt around the same size. So that's how we've came up with our first baseline about what that relative complexity is for story points. So I've seen these cards being used, and I think the idea is that 
everyone on the team gets a deck mm-hmm. and makes a suggestion as to how complex something might be, and then there's kind of a decision that right. if people are relatively similar numbers, like five and eights, okay, it could be one or the other. Whereas if someone picking a twenty, then you might want to discuss something like that. Yes. But then once you've made a decision on the complexity, how does that relate to how much time it's going to take to complete that task? So story points should not have a direct correlation to time, and I think that's something that a lot of uh, people do. I think it's also an easy thing to fall into doing. So what we end up doing is we understand uh, for each team that there's a certain number of story points they can deliver in a sprint. Uh, we keep a running log. Um, I keep track of on a regular basis at the end of every sprint, which is basically how many story points per person per day can that team deliver? And then we look at each sprint, how many per person days are available. So it's it's a pretty simple equation. It's just getting that rolling average and keeping that updated. So what we do is we know, you know, one team can deliver 60 story points. That's generally what we'll use for our planning. But as a gut check, we also... We'll task out and do some hours and see, you know, if things seem out of whack there. But you did say there that you know story points per day. So there is sort of an implied correlation between the number of hours in a day and the number of points. Only for that planning. Yeah, we're not trying to use that during the grooming, which is the planning poker session you were talking about okay. with the cards. It's um, it's really just to use as a as a tool because each team is a little bit different. And we've had a lot of shifts on our team, so it's been hard to say, you know, your esti- your estimated velocity for your team is 60 because the past three sprints you did 54, 62, you know, 57. We've had a lot of variance, so we found story points per person per day to be an easy way to be able to plan given changes of team members. So it becomes a helpful tool for planning how much complexity a team should take on in a sprint as opposed to necessarily how much work they should do. Yes. Which is a exactly. very similar concept, but there is a difference because mm-hmm. I, I suppose with a more experienced team, in the same length of time, they can get more story points done or a team that's say, more familiar with the project yes. as opposed to a team coming onto a project right. or a team with a lot of new members, again, would have a, a lower number of story points. But Still would require the same number of a higher number of hours. Right. It's a it's a is this a newer concept or has this been there all along? I think it's been there all along, but I I don't know how many uh, teams are really uh, using the actual story points for planning. So I think teams tend to to fall back and look at hours. I think that's a little bit more of a, a logical way to plan. But when you're actually looking at how much complexity your team can deliver by story points. Uh, once you've got a few sprints under your belt, it's easy to start using that for your planning. We we tried a hybrid of that, to be honest. We look at our estimated uh, velocity for each team every sprint, but we also look at a kind of a bucketed number of hours, you know, just based on, you know, team size and available man hours. And uh, more and more, we've been finding that the estimated velocity lines up much better than actually looking at the hours. So does that mean you're just better at estimating complexity as opposed to time, or that this is a better measure? I think it means it's a better measure. Uh, I also feel like it's a more useful way to spend your time because you can measure complexity. I feel on uh, you know a faster, it's a much faster cadence than if you you know go and are doing detailed tasking and 
and you know you're you're figuring out every 15 minute increment of time that you're going to need to to kind of figure out how you're going to deliver this story and that just you're going to be wrong that's always what happens and it's just not a great use of your time and i've i've worked in a few companies that have had agile and they've never implemented this before my current employer does um in your previous roles in other companies mm-hmm. What were you using to measure complexity and time there? I never worked in a fully agile environment as we have here. So uh, we were, I was in projects that were kind of a scrum fall, I think you might call it. Which mm. is, I think there's a lot of, of companies that are like that. So we would do some light sizing of things. We would do the t-shirt sizing, small, medium, large mm-hmm. type of thing. But when it came down to it, our estimates were more driven by the actual hours. So we would do detailed uh, tasking and then knowing that's always wrong, you have to have some type of kind of buffer for what things might come up that you weren't expecting. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people probably have come from environments where you were doing your planning and estimating based on kind of man hours and understanding how long a task would t- take. But We've really found that the the complexity in story points is just more and more accurate as our, our teams have been growing and changing. But this is something that's significantly different for, let's say, upper management to understand. When you come along and say, we need new developers because our story points aren't meeting the number we want, is it something that you explain to them? Is it something they can handle? Yes, it is definitely something. And I will say our VP of Engineering uh, Doug Williams, who I work closely with in terms of resourcing and team sizes, he, I believe, has worked in other um, Agile environments. Uh, when he had joined our team, we were pretty set up and rolling with Agile. But in terms of the story point, story points and how those work, he completely gets it. So it's an easy conversation talking to him about that. In the prep for the interview, you mentioned a culture team, and it sounded really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Definitely. So our culture team is probably something most organizations don't have, but culture is something that's really important to us at Runkeeper. I think it's in addition to kind of what Runkeeper is and our mission and values, I would say our culture is one of the biggest drivers for people joining our team. So knowing that, you know, we want to grow, we want to add more people to the team, we need to make sure we're keeping our culture, you know, in line with what it is today, but also scaling it as we grow. So we have a... Um, almost like a SWAT team of folks who really care and are passionate about the culture and want to make sure that we're scaling it. So our culture team is made up of people from across the organization and different functions. And that team is set up uh, almost like a, um, you know, a bit of a Kanban slash scrum type of team. So we have a backlog. We um, are going through and prioritizing our backlog. We are just about to start doing retros we haven't done many on a regular basis to date, but we are starting those. And, you know, I think it's pretty interesting to use that backlog and basically pulling from the backlog as a, um, you know, a way to maintain culture. You know, we're not trying to react to things when they come up. We're trying to be proactive about the culture and using um, Agile to do that, I think, is something that's really helpful. Does that fit in with quality of life for employees, like working hours and being able to take holidays when appropriate? Absolutely. So our culture team is definitely looking out for that. So right now at Runkeeper, we don't have a, um, we have an unlimited vacation policy. 
So as long as you're getting your work done, you're communicating with your manager and your team, you know, you're able to take off the time that you need. Uh, I also think having that though, people definitely respect that. People work hard, people care about what we're doing here and, you know, definitely don't abuse that. And that's the kind of thing that the culture team wants to keep in place. You know, people like that. It, it was part of what attracts them here and how we can scale that and not let one bad apple ruin the bunch as we grow is something that is important to us. To date, we haven't had a bad apple doing that, but you know, we don't want to have to come up with policies to prevent maybe one person from doing something wrong. And have you found that people stick to within the three to five week kind of range on a yearly basis? Uh, off the cuff, I'd say yes, but we're yeah. not actively tracking that. So, no, fair enough. Um, so it's hard for me to say for sure. I mean, it's a very nice benefit because often you'll go on your vacation, but then something will come up and you'll need more time off. And as opposed to having to go through hoops to get unpaid leave or the like, mm-hmm. it, it works really well. Yeah, it's definitely worked well. We've had, you know, several members of the team, you know, get married while working here. They want to take off some time for that honeymoon. Been able to accommodate that as long as we know ahead of time and, you know, we can plan accordingly. It works out just fine. One of your book choices that stands out is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, A Leadership Fable. Can you tell me why that one, why you picked that one? Certainly. That book I thought was very interesting, not just the content, but also the way it's written. So it's not, I think a lot of business books are written in a way that can be a little bit dry. This is actually written in a way where uh, you're basically taken through a journey of this fictional team. And I think it's pretty interesting to walk through the different scenarios and the different types of personalities. And I think they are all personalities that you know we've dealt with in different work environments. So I think it's written in a really relatable way, which is helpful. But it's really interesting just to understand the levels that the author lays out and that a lot of the problems that we have and work with our coworkers, um, you know, comes back to an absence of trust and how that might manifest itself in different ways. So I think it's it's a good read. It's a pretty short read, and uh, it's definitely um, a lot more fun than most other business books. And if you read it and like it, they also have a field guide, which gives you a lot of practical examples and ways you could go about working with your team to try to, you know, if you are having issues, work through those issues. Was there a particular scenario in one of your jobs that this helped with? I would say generally as um, working here and having our team grow and kind of building culture, you know, thinking about these different levels and, and not from the perspective of we're having specific problems we need to fix, but these are things that could happen if we're not paying you know, intentional, um, if we're not intentionally focused on the culture. So it's been more, I would say, preventative. Rebecca Odette, thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank you. It's been fun talking to you.
The opening music title to The Return is by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music title to Dedication 4 by Sherio Ephraimus and LEQ is from the album Vocalizes. <laughs> 